This is a Library Channel program from the UC San Diego Library. Visit us at www.uctv.tv slash library channel for interviews, author talks, and other programs that will inspire you to read, write, think, and dream. It is now my distinct pleasure to introduce Ari Shapiro to you all more formally. As the host of NPR's award-winning afternoon news magazine, All Things Considered, Ari covers some of the most important and impactful stories around the world. The first NPR reporter to be promoted to correspondent before age 30, Ari previously covered stories as the outlet's international correspondent, its White House correspondent, and its justice correspondent. Those of us who are fans of Ari's, and many of us are, know that whether he is reporting from India or Orlando, Ari has an amazing knack for transporting his listeners to the scene of whatever compelling news event he is covering. A magna cum laude graduate of Yale and a frequent guest contributor on television news programs, Ari somehow also manages to find time for an occasional singing gig with a so-called little orchestra some of you will have heard of called Pink Martini. Please join me in welcoming Ari Shapiro. Thank you, Brian. Uh, I am Ari Shapiro, and you all look nothing like what I imagined either. (laughs) You guys get to see this building every day, so you might lose perspective on what an incredible place it is, but I just laid eyes on it for the first time walking up here today, and I had to take a picture, and I posted the picture on social media, and let me tell you, alumni from all over the world who spent some of their formative years at UCSD are now blowing up my social media feed with all of their memories of this building. And so it's such a privilege to be able to help you support this phenomenal place, especially with so many of our friends from KPBS. I don't know whether you're aware of this, but there are a lot of cities in the U.S., that are much bigger than San Diego, that have much worse stations. You are so fortunate to have a station like KPBS here. Um, The last time I addressed a group of people here in San Diego, I was at Humphreys by the Bay with Pink Martini, and uh, just about where you're sitting, there were kayaks. But I'm, I'm actually much happier to be here because the chances are much smaller of a bug flying in my mouth in the middle of what I'm doing. Um, so, you know, I promised to talk about the news tonight. And I will. But I want to get there by way of fiction. Partly because we're in a library. We're in a, 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 a temple to fiction, a palace of stories. And partly because even though for the last 15 years I have covered the news, you know, the Justice Department, the White House, wars. When I was in college, I wasn't a political science major. I wasn't a history major. I wasn't a journalism major. I was an English major. I spent my time... Yeah, let's hear it for English majors. I spent my time reading novels and plays and poems. And the reason I did that was that For me, I found that fiction illuminated the world in ways 
that nonfiction sometimes falls short. And so being in this building, it feels only appropriate to pay tribute to those writers whose imaginations help us better understand the world we live in. And in a way, it almost feels to me like I've sort of come full circle because I studied English when I was in college and then I got into journalism covering the news. And this month marks one year since I became the host of All Things Considered. And one of the wonderful things about this job is that I get to go to India and report on development and climate change. And I get to, you know, go to Orlando and report on the Pulse nightclub shooting. And I also get to interview authors and musicians and actors about their work. And these sort of might feel like opposite ends of the spectrum. But the truth is, they inform each other so closely. And actually, the the reporting I did from India is a good example of this. Because for years, I had been obsessed with an area in eastern India called the Sundarbans. And the Sundarbans are these incredible patchwork landscape of mangrove islands in this tidal estuary where the islands disappear and reappear with the tides and Bengal tigers swim between the islands. And the reason I was obsessed with this place was that I had read a novel by the author Amitav Ghosh called The Hungry Tide. I'd read this novel in 2004, and it stuck so vividly in my head that when I had the opportunity to go do a reporting trip in India, I said, I want to go to the Sundarbans. I had good reasons to go to the Sundarbans. I mean, there were important stories to tell there. (laughs) But, um, and so one of the first things I did in my reporting was I called this novelist, Amitav Ghosh, and I interviewed him about this place that so captured his imagination that he wrote this book that stuck with me for more than a decade. And then I found myself this May in the Sundarbans reporting on people who were being forced from their islands because climate change was creating sea level rise, people who were having close encounters with Bengal tigers because uh, the rising seas had created smaller habitat for the tigers. And so it was this, this, this perfect convergence of my love of fiction, my love of the news, my love of storytelling. And I had this amazing experience with my producer, Matt Ozug, my photographer, David Gilkey, and me based on this novel that I had read in 2004. Parenthetical, Amitav Ghosh also wrote an amazing historical fiction trilogy about the opium wars. It's really good. It's worth reading. Um, But in fact, you know, just this week I interviewed three fiction authors and all three of them sort of helped me reflect on the news in different ways. Uh, One of them was a first-time novelist named Anuk Arud Pragasam. And yes, I said that live on the radio, (laughs) twice. He's from Sri Lanka and he wrote about the civil war in his home country. And he had this passage, the whole book, it's tiny, it's less than 200 pages, it has a very small number of characters, it takes place in less than a day, and it's brutal and horrific and also incredible poetry. And there's a line I want to read to you from this novel where he describes a clinic with patients and flies landing on the patient's skin. And he writes that they almost seemed like worshippers at a temple paying tribute So he writes, they would fold back their wings so respectfully when they landed, bending their four back legs, 
lowering their bodies and bowing down their heads. Raising their two front legs up in front of their faces, they would wrap their little hands together silently as if in fervent prayer. And only after several seconds of prostrating like this would they put their lips down reverently to the skin. I mean, this description in this novel is more vivid than any war reporting I've ever seen. This week I also interviewed Ann Patchett, who, she's written all kinds of famous novels, Belcanto, and her latest novel is called Commonwealth, and it has these scenes set in the 1970s where these kids have sort of this free-range childhood, as she describes it. And, you know, we have stories on all things considered all the time about helicopter parenting and the best ways to parent. This novel gives better insight into kind of the pros and cons of these approaches to parenting than any of those stories I've ever heard. And then the third author interview that I did this week was with Jonathan Safran Foer, who is very well known for his books Everything is Illuminated and Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. And his new novel, Here I Am, it's like 600 pages. It's this tome, and it's his first novel in more than a decade. And one of the questions this novel explores, which is sort of you know, a way to get into how we talk about the news, is how do you go about your daily lives balancing the mundane annoyances and crises of living while terrible things are happening all over the world. And there's one scene in this book where a woman who's sort of an interior designer is at a very high-end hardware store, and she picks up a a sort of elegant doorknob. And Jonathan Safran Foer writes, It was elegant and it was obnoxious. And in a world where the bodies of Syrian children washed up on beaches, it was unethical, or at least vulgar. And I'm sure that any conscious thinking person has felt that way at times. And as a journalist who covers these crises, I perhaps feel that way more often than most. And, and in a way, being a journalist is almost a blessing in this respect, because it, it actually takes me back to one of the very first lessons that I learned as a journalist 15 years ago almost to the day. When I was an editorial assistant working the overnight shift on Morning Edition, so I was working 1 to 9 a.m., and I was the most junior person on the staff, and one morning I was getting ready to leave for the day, and I saw everybody clustered around the TV screen, and of course there was smoke coming out of one of the towers of the World Trade Center. And so I sat back down at my desk and I started calling people who were in the upper levels of the towers saying, will you go on the air? Will you describe what's happening? And when we reached the end of our long day and handed the baton to the afternoon crew that kept going with our coverage, I remember the host of Morning Edition, Bob Edwards at the time, saying, you know, at moments like this, at moments of national crisis, people naturally ask themselves, what can I do? What role can I play? And as journalists, we're incredibly fortunate because we know what our role is. We know what we're there to do. We're there to tell the story. We're there to document what's happening. We are there to give people a connection to these events that are so important but can sometimes feel so distant. And so that's what I've tried to do throughout my career And the challenge, I think, was especially acute for me when I went overseas, when I moved to London just three years ago now, uh, to be one of NPR's international correspondents. NPR, unlike most American news organizations, we have 17 international bureaus. 
Uh, and so I was based in London, but I was traveling a lot. And when I first got to London, I, there was a story in the newspaper about a World War II rocket that was discovered in a basement of East London that had not exploded, had fallen during the Blitz when tens of thousands of German rockets reduced London and especially East London to rubble. And this rocket, the size of a human being, five or six feet long, was unearthed in this basement. And I thought to myself, this country has a different relationship with war than the United States. I mean, the U.S. has fought in a number of wars, but not on our soil. And we haven't been hit by tens of thousands of bombs. And even if we have family and loved ones who lived through or fought in World War II or Vietnam, it didn't happen in our neighborhoods. And, and I remember thinking that part of my job as a journalist overseas was going to be to help people who had never experienced war and didn't have that feeling of what it's like to know that a bomb could fall in your house understand on a real visceral human level what that feels like, even as they do go about their lives buying elegant doorknobs. And so in that year, 2014, it was the 100th anniversary of the start of World War I, and there was an exhibition at the Tower of London, and it was called, it took its line from a poem that a World War I soldier wrote. Uh, the exhibition was called Bloodstained Sands and Seas of Red. And this artist had created a red ceramic poppy for each life lost from Britain and the British colonies during World War I. And each of these ceramic poppies was planted by hand in the moat surrounding the Tower of London. And there was more than 800,000 of them. And so you just imagine this tide of red washing and crashing against the walls of the Tower of London. And you look at that and you realize what war means in a way that watching it on CNN or even reading the books about it or even hearing the stories from the people who have lived through it doesn't necessarily bring home in the same way. So before I ever actually covered a war, I went to Sarajevo to report on the 100th anniversary of the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, which was the assassination that started World War I. And I was working with a local journalist named Nijara Ahmetasevich. And I remember her telling me that everybody over the age of 20 in Sarajevo was suffering from PTSD because this was a country that had been through horrors during the breakup of Yugoslavia and when Serbia was attacking. And uh, she and I spent a week reporting together on this 100th anniversary. And we went back to the apartment that I was renting one day. And we went into the building and I saw people in the stairwell slowly walking up the stairs. It was a very, very old woman and a man who was maybe in his 60s and the man's wife, and they were speaking Hebrew to each other. And I speak a little bit of Hebrew, and I asked them what they were doing there, and they explained to me that this woman and her grown son had come back from Israel, where they live now, to visit the building where this woman grew up in. And this woman and her husband had survived World War II and had not been back to Sarajevo since. And she wanted to come and see if the graves of her relatives were still intact. And they were. And she described laying a stone on the graves. 
And after she told me, of course, I got out my reporter kit and I was recording and I was, you know, getting this all on tape. And when I finished, I saw that she and Najara were talking very closely in Bosnian, which is a language that this woman in her 90s probably had not spoken in decades. And uh, after they were talking, Najara and I went to lunch and I said, Najara, what were you and that woman talking about? It seemed very intense. And she said, well, the woman asked if I had lived through the war in Sarajevo. And I told her I had. And she said to me, we who have lived through war have to tell our stories. Because unless people know what war means, there will never be peace. And I thought about the bond that these two women had who had only met that day, who were separated by many thousands of miles where they lived, by generations but who still found this connection through the knowledge they both had that I was somehow trying to glean and convey to people who, like me, had never been through this and never experienced it. My first actual experience of war was in eastern Ukraine when separatists started taking over buildings in the city of Donetsk. Beautiful, beautiful city in eastern Ukraine near the Russian border. And there were all of these parks, and the airport was brand new. When I flew into the airport, I thought I was, you know, in Singapore or something. It was such a glass, shining, gleaming building. And my translator there was um, a young college student named Zhenya. And he narrated, I mean, you know, he was working with me, helping me to translate and find my way around the city. But he was also watching his city, as he knew it, fall apart. This was this beautiful town that was exploding in flowers in the summer. And there were ice cream stalls on the corner. And there were old women walking down the street and young children playing games. And there were street musicians. And suddenly, there were barbed wire barricades and Molotov cocktails. And so he and I spent a week reporting on this this unfolding crisis. And Then I went back to London and I lost touch with him. And just recently I heard from him and he asked if I would write him a recommendation for an international fellowship that he was applying for. And I said, of course. And I said, by the way, where did you end up? What happened? And he said, well, the separatists took over my university building. They just moved into the dorms, took all of our things, took all of my clothes, my books. And so I picked up and I moved to a university in Western Ukraine, and I finished my education there, but my parents are still living in eastern Ukraine. And he said, and that beautiful airport you flew into is now a smoking shell that's been reduced to a pile of rubble. And, you know, I think that as as Americans, we sometimes hear about what's happening in Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan. And we, and I include myself in this we, we have a tendency to say, oh, it is so terrible what is happening to those war people. But, you know, well, they're, they're war people, and they live in a war place, so it's really a tragedy, but those are war people in a war place. So it's not like, you know, we live in America, doesn't happen here. But being in Donetsk and seeing this beautiful city with street musicians and and ice cream vendors and this shiny new airport and these beautiful parks, they're no more war people than we are war people. They happen to be war people now. But it's so easy to sort of write off people who are thousands and thousands and thousands of miles away as different from us in some way because we've never experienced it. 
And until it happened to Genya, he had never experienced it either. Um, and so the challenge for me is when every day the news is this sort of potentially bleak onslaught, how do you get through the bleakness? And one answer I've found is to, to borrow a phrase from Mr. Rogers, look for the helpers. Do you all remember that, you know, Mr. Rogers says when bad things happen, you look for the people who are helping. So I remember I was in uh, coastal Turkey, which was the jumping off point for migrants who were leaving for uh, Europe, mostly Syrian migrants, but people from other war-torn countries as well. And I found this teeny little cafe where this Turkish man had set out power strips in front of his cafe, and he had put the Wi-Fi information, the login and password, on the exterior of his restaurant. Because, of course, you know, we think, well, refugees, they're poor, they're dirty, they're war people. They're not poor, dirty war people. They're people who have lived full lives as dentists or teachers or construction workers or anything else that anyone else we might associate with does before war destroys their country. And They're keeping in touch with their family and friends on Facebook and WhatsApp and being able to plug their phone in and recharge it and get on Wi-Fi and message their friends and Skype with their families is a huge blessing. And so I remember talking to this cafe worker and what he said to me was, I like to think that if I were in their shoes, someone would do the same thing for me. And that small act of just him putting himself in their shoes is something that is harder to find than it ought to be. And relating to them, not as refugees, not as war people, but as people. And I remember one of these gentlemen who I interviewed for a story, um, he was waiting for night to fall until the smugglers would take him across to Greece. And so he was killing time, and he said, well, should we go have tea or something? And I said, sure. So we went to this restaurant, and we ordered tea, and the bill arrived, and I insisted on paying the bill, and he got really offended. And, and, and finally I realized, I was like, this was a wealthy man in, his, in Syria. He's a person who had a life and a family and resources, and the fact that I was insisting on paying the bill and in some way treating him as a refugee a war person, instead of the kind of person he had always been his whole life in Syria, was offensive to him. And he insisted on paying, and I let him pay. And I'm really happy to say that he is now in Germany, enrolled in a graduate program, working to design hotels. He's a structural engineer. Um, And unfortunately... As I go about telling these stories, I am aware that fewer and fewer news organizations in the United States are sending people out to tell these kinds of stories. I mean, the the truth is, you know, I could have talked tonight about Trump and Clinton. We hear a lot about Trump and Clinton. There are a lot of people covering Trump and Clinton. There are a lot of important things to say about Trump and Clinton. Most of those things have been said. There are not a lot of people covering these really crucial, important stories that can sometimes be difficult to relate to. And, and, and so I want to end by telling you about kind of the stakes for those of us who tell these stories. Um, I mentioned when I went to India, I went with 
my producer, Matt Ozug, and photographer, David Gilkey. Because, of course, NPR exists now not only on the radio, but also online and, you know, in other spaces. And so we have photographers, which is funny for a radio organization. (laughs) But we have incredibly talented photographers who are artists with an amazing vision and an eye that is just beautiful. And so a couple weeks after we returned from India, our photographer, David Gilkey, turned around and went to Afghanistan with... One of our correspondents, Tom Bowman, producer, Monica Statieva, and the local translator and interpreter, Fixer, there. And they were reporting on this project that the U.S. has been engaged in for more than a decade, trying to get the Afghan army up to speed, seeing whether the Afghan army was getting up to speed. And they were in a convoy embedded with the Afghan army in southern Afghanistan when their convoy came under fire. And David Gilkey and his interpreter, our interpreter, Zabiola Tamana, were both killed. And it was David's 13th trip to Afghanistan. He first went there before 9-11 happened. He had to go on a Taliban visa because that was the only way to get into the country at that point. And this was a story he was so committed to covering. And when the news broke that he had been killed in Afghanistan, I happened to be in my hometown, Portland, Oregon, which was also his hometown. And so I went to visit his parents and talk to them about him, about his work, about his incredible eye, about our experiences in India. And even in the middle of the experience of having just lost a child, they talked about knowing that he was doing something so important, that he was telling stories that would not otherwise be told. And he was making sure the world knew about things that the world needed to know about. And that's what we do as journalists. And that's what authors do. And that's what librarians create a space for. And that's what we are all a part of. Whether we're donors or listeners or reporters or supporters... I was asked recently for a project to choose a word that I would hold on a sign. And everybody was being photographed for this project from all different walks of life, and everyone was going to hold a sign with a different word. And the word I chose was listen. Because I think we can all uh, understand each other a little better and relate to each other a little more. And even by gaudy, obnoxious doorknobs and still live with the fact that the bodies of Syrian children are washing up on beaches in a world where we listen. And uh, so I'm grateful to you for listening both to me tonight and to NPR on the radio and to the people around you in your community. And uh, I'm honored to be here with you this evening. Thank you very much.